Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. On November 14, 2004, Commander David Fravor of the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group was leading a routine training mission in an F-A-18F Super Hornet over the Pacific Ocean. What he received an unusual radio transmission. An operations officer from the USS Princeton, a Navy cruiser that was part of the strike group, asked if their planes were carrying weapons. Commander Fravor replied that he was carrying dummy missiles that could not be fired. They weren't expecting any sort of hostile activity during the training mission, so they didn't think they'd need live weapons. The radio operator replied that they had spotted something unusual on radar and asked that Commander Fravor break off from training to investigate. Over the past two weeks, radar operators on board the Princeton had been tracking some unknown aircraft over the ocean that demonstrated unusual flight patterns. On November 14th, the radar operator noted several of these objects had appeared suddenly at 80,000 feet then began hurtling toward the sea at an incredible rate of speed before abruptly stopping in mid-air to 20,000 feet. At that point, the object appeared to either drop out of radar range or shot back up into space. There are no known aircraft on Earth that are able to do this. The Princeton gave Commander Fravor coordinates to locate the mysterious object. This took the pilot to the point on the radar where he arrived in what's called a merge plot, this is the point where two objects on radar appear so close together, the radar operator can no longer tell them apart. But although the mysterious object should have been visible to Fravor, at first he couldn't see anything. There was nothing showing up on the jet's instruments either. Then Fravor looked directly below his plane and spotted something hovering over the ocean. The seas were relatively calm that day, but whatever the object was, it was causing the ocean surface to churn below it. Hovering about 50 feet above the water was an aircraft of some kind, but it was unlike any aircraft Commander Fravor had ever seen before. The object was oval in shape, about 40 feet long and whitish in color. By the time news reports began coming out years later about the pilot's encounter, most articles referred to this mysterious object as a tic-tac UFO, based on its description. The craft was jumping around erratically, zigzagging in different directions over the waves with no discernible pattern. Although the object appeared to have no visible means of propulsion, whatever was allowing it to fly appeared to be affecting the water below. Braver noted that the ocean surface beneath the object appeared frothy, almost as if the water was boiling. Braver's jet was equipped with a camera that could detect heat, but the object appeared to be emitting no exhaust which as far as Fravor or any other pilot would assume meant this thing, whatever it was, shouldn't be able to fly. Commander Fravor was stunned. He took his plane lower to get a closer look at the object, but as he drew nearer to the flying craft, it suddenly changed course and began ascending toward Commander Fravor's jet. According to Fravor, the object behaved as if it noticed him and wanted to get a better look. Fravor kept flying straight toward the object. For a brief time, the object appeared to mirror the pilot's speed and position. Then suddenly, the object accelerated at an astonishing rate of speed and vanished. In a typical aircraft, there's a period of acceleration, but 
This craft moved so fast it practically blipped out of sight in the blink of an eye. By the time Fravor returned to the Nimitz, everyone on board was buzzing about the encounter. Some of the sailors couldn't help but poke fun at the pilot for seeing a UFO. But not everyone thought it was a joke. After Fravor returned, another pilot, Lieutenant Commander Chad Underwood, headed out in a jet looking for the mysterious object. He thought that if there really was some sort of mysterious aircraft with no wings and no visible signs of propulsion, then they should attempt to capture it on video. Which he did. Underwood's plane was equipped with an advanced infrared camera called a FLIR. Underwood located the tic-tac-shaped object and managed to capture video of it on the FLIR camera, although he later reported that he did not actually see the object himself. Every time he tried approaching the object, it veered just out of visual range according to his onboard radar. Then, when it finally shot off at an astonishing rate of speed, something else that surprised Underwood was that it didn't create a typical sonic boom, which any normal aircraft would do. All of this appeared to defy all known laws of physics. But this was not the only official Navy video of an unidentified flying object that would eventually be released to the public. Sometime between 2014 and 2015, fighter pilots from the USS Theodore Roosevelt Carrier Strike Group operating off the east coast of the United States also managed to record what came to be known as the gimbal and go-fast videos of strange objects in the sky that their pilots were unable to identify. All of this came out in the public after the New York Times released a bombshell report on December 16, 2017, which revealed that the United States government had been financing a top-secret program out of the Department of Defense to study what they referred to as Unexplained Aerial Phenomena, or UAPs. This secret program was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP for short. It began in 2007 after $22 million was set aside in the federal budget by the former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid under the auspices of the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency. This program ran for five years until funding dried up in 2012. A former U.S. Army counterintelligence officer named Luis Elizondo came forward claiming to be the ATIP project director. He has since gone public speaking in numerous interviews and in a number of UFO documentaries, claiming that he views these UAPs as a serious threat to national security, since these objects appear to defy both the laws of physics and can apparently go anywhere, even breaching secure government airspace. Since the ATIP program and the Navy videos of UFOs went public, many skeptics have attempted to poke holes in the story. All sorts of alternative explanations have been put forth as to what these UAPs could be. Everything from misidentified jet planes to advanced drone technology built by foreign governments, to low-flying satellites, to simple glitches in the hardware used to film and detect them. When the New York Times released their original article about ATIP, the reporters weren't so much interested in trying to prove that UFOs were real or that they came from outer space, as they were interested in revealing that the United States government took this phenomenon seriously enough to fund research into finding out what these objects were. But the thing is, this isn't the first time in history when the U.S. government has led an official investigation into studying UFOs. The first time was back in the 1950s, with a program known as Project Blue Book. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm both a little bit Mulder and a little bit Scully, and this is The Conspirators.
The year 1947 was a big one for UFOs. On June 24, 1947, a private pilot named Kenneth Arnold inadvertently coined the term flying saucers after he told a reporter that he had just witnessed a group of saucer-like objects flying over Mount Rainier. Just a few weeks after that, on July 8, 1947, the United States Army issued an official press release that was quickly retracted, stating that some debris found in a farmer's field were the remnants of a crashed flying disc. That particular incident occurred in a little town in New Mexico you might have heard of called Roswell. Then on January 7, 1948, yet another legendary incident occurred in UFO lore. It all began at 1.20 p.m., 1320 hours in military time. That was when the Kentucky State Police and the Fort Knox Military Police radioed the tower at Godman Army Airfield to report that numerous witnesses had spotted a large circular object that was estimated to be approximately 250 to 300 feet in diameter flying over the area. An observer in the tower verified with the Army Flight Service that the object had been spotted over Irvington, then Owensburg, Kentucky. Then at 1350, the object became visible to everyone inside the tower as well. Several phone calls were made and it was quickly determined that the military did not have any top-secret aircraft in the sky that day. Since this mysterious craft was flying over restricted airspace, four Air National Guard P-51 Mustangs were dispatched to intercept the object. One of the four planes was low on fuel and broke off the chase early. Three other planes, including one flown by Captain Thomas Mantell, continued pursuit. One of Mantell's wingmen famously radioed Godman Tower demanding to know, What the hell are we looking for? No one could say for sure. Military police at Fort Knox described it as a small white object hovering stationary in the southwest sky. Someone who observed the object with binoculars later reported that they could see some sort of red light emanating from the lower part of it. One of the tower crew at Godman Tower described the object as looking like an ice cream cone topped with red. The ranking colonel at Godman Tower later reported the object looked umbrella-shaped to him. It was just a fluke that Captain Mantell happened to be in the air that afternoon. He was in command of three other Air National Guard pilots who had volunteered to pick up four P-51 Mustangs that were left behind on a previous exercise. They were on their way flying the planes back at a low altitude to their home base in Standardford Field in Louisville when they got the call up at the mysterious object. The two other P-51s that had first followed along Captain Mantell in pursuit of the object eventually broke off. But Captain Mantell kept going, taking his plane higher and higher to get a better look at the object. The problem was Mantell's plane wasn't equipped with oxygen, and the air grew increasingly thinner the higher he climbed. This is what the Army eventually determined caused Captain Thomas Mantell's death. The official report stated that Captain Mantell passed out from lack of oxygen at 25,000 to 30,000 feet, after which point his plane leveled out and started its descent, spiraling into a nosedive into a farmer's field below. The Army would go on to officially report that the strange object Captain Mantell was chasing was actually the planet Venus. Although unofficially, several officers began worrying that a spaceship from another planet may have shot down Captain Mantell's plane. The last radio transmission Mantell made before he crashed was, It appears metallic, of tremendous size. I'm trying to close in for a better look. Back in 1948, the Mantell crash was just the latest incident that pushed the U.S. government to begin their own study of unidentified flying objects. The head of the Air Material Command at the Army Air Force Technical Base in Dayton, Ohio, was Lieutenant General Nathan Twining. He had become concerned enough about the influx of reports he'd been receiving of flying saucers 
that he determined an official government inquiry into the phenomena was called for. This new program dubbed Project Sign was opened on January 23, 1948. Although the Army's investigators quickly determined that Captain Thomas Mantell crashed his plane after mistakenly chasing the plane of Venus, both the press and the American public found this explanation lacking. No one seriously believed that an experienced pilot flying in broad daylight would ever make such a foolish mistake. In order to help lend some further credence to their explanation, the Air Force determined the project needed to enlist the aid of a professional astronomer. This would have to be someone with an impeccable reputation, who also held high security clearance. It just so happened there was someone who fit the bill living right there in Ohio. Joseph Allen Hynek, who throughout his adult life went by his first initial J. Allen Hynek, was the director of the observatory at Ohio State University in Columbus. During World War II, Hynek had worked at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, where he helped develop the United States Navy's radio proximity fuse for missiles. When representatives from the Air Force approached him to study some UFO reports for Project Sign, including the crash of Thomas Mantell, Hynek figured it might be fun to lend a hand. He realized there were some reputational risks if it appeared he was researching flying saucers, but Hynek figured his work wouldn't take long since he'd already decided that the whole subject of flying saucers was ridiculous. He thought flying saucers were a fad that would quickly pass, but it turned out that the investigation of unidentified flying objects would continue for the rest of Hynek's life. Professor Hynek worked with Project Sign from December 16, 1948 to April 30, 1949, during which he analyzed hundreds of UFO reports, including the Mantell crash. He agreed with the official report that Mantell blacked out from lack of oxygen after mistakenly pursuing Venus. He was also able to quickly write off a number of other UFO sightings as mistaken identification of many other known aircraft, birds, and celestial events, like meteors and comets. Although there were still a handful of UFO reports that Hynek couldn't immediately explain away, he remained certain that a simple explanation would present itself if they just had a little more data to go on. During the year he worked for Project Sign, Professor Hynek studied 243 domestic and 30 foreign flying saucer incidents. Hynek determined that one-third of those reports could be explained by misidentification of astronomical phenomena. Another third were misidentifications of man-made objects, and a small fraction of these cases could be set aside for having too little information to go on. But that still left about 20% of these UFO reports that remained unexplained. One such incident took place in Phoenix, Arizona on July 7, 1947. That was when an eyewitness not only reported seeing a 20-30 to 30 foot wide gray object with a distinct cockpit descending, then quickly ascending away in the sky overhead, but the witness just so happened to have a camera on hand and managed to snap a couple photos of the object. Heineck was unable to explain the circular flying object seen in the photos, although his notes lamented that he wished there had been a more thorough investigation of the incident. Case number 122 was even more troubling to Heineck. That was because the three eyewitnesses were civilian scientists, like himself. These men were trained observers who at the time of their UFO sighting were looking for an experimental balloon. Instead, they observed a circular object zipping through the sky and performing what was described as violent maneuvers at a high rate of speed. All Heineck could conclude from that incident was that there appeared to be no logical explanation for it. Project Sign's final report in February 1949 gave an earnest description of the team's findings, providing earthly explanations for most, but not all, of the reported UFO incidents. 
The report did include a nine-page section devoted to the possibility that some of these cases might actually be visitors from another planet. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. But even as Project Sign was winding down, the UFO reports kept coming in. At 2.45 a.m. on July 24, 1948, pilots flying an Eastern Airlines DC-3 from Houston to Atlanta reported seeing a wingless, cigar-shaped craft approximately 100 feet long flying near their plane before disappearing into the clouds. This sighting was further corroborated by Clarence McKelvey, an editor from Columbus, Ohio, who was a passenger on the plane. He said he saw a reddish streak of light moving in a southern direction through one of the plane's windows. As reports such as these began to grow in frequency, public anxiety continued to grow. Remember, this was the era when the Cold War was rapidly intensifying. Many stories began to circulate that perhaps these weren't aliens from outer space invading, but maybe there were some top-secret Soviet weapons that the United States was wholly unprepared for. Following Project Science's conclusion, a new group was formed named Project Grudge. The name alone should give you some indication of the stance this program took. Project Grudge's stated goal was to debunk all UFO reports and alleviate public concern. Although officially Project Grudge was classified, the Air Force began a covert public relations campaign to make the public believe that flying saucers were a complete waste of time. Articles were strategically placed in popular magazines portraying flying saucers as nothing more than hoaxes, delusions, and misidentifications of birds and common aircraft. They even went back in and reinvestigated some of J. Allen Hynek's most perplexing cases and gave them simple explanations like meteors and mass hysteria. Over eight months, Project Grudge investigated 244 UFO reports and concluded that all of them constituted no threat to the United States after which Project Grudge recommended to the Pentagon that the investigation into unidentified flying objects should be reduced in scope and that new standards should be developed in which the Air Force would be able to explain away any further UFO reports through, quote, realistic technical applications. But Project Grudge's attempts to quell public anxieties over UFOs didn't work. Articles continued to be published in magazines by UFO encounters. Science fiction movies like 1951's The Thing from Another World terrified audiences. Widely respected TV journalist Edward R. Murrow hosted a television program about flying saucers, during which he interviewed Kenneth Arnold. Flying saucers had become part of the public zeitgeist and weren't going anywhere. In January 1950, Donald Kehoe, a retired U.S. Navy major and former Marine, published a shocking article in True magazine titled Flying Saucers Are Real. This magazine flew off newsstand shelves and went on to become one of the most widely read and discussed articles in publishing history. It was quickly extended after that to become a best-selling book as well. Although Keogh's book was widely criticized for playing fast and loose with the facts, the public ate it up. Because the Air Force never outright responded to Keogh's claims about a government cover-up of information on flying saucers, it soon became widely accepted that the government must be hiding the truth about what they knew. Meanwhile, J. Allen Hynek's reputation was rising in academia. He became a full professor and assistant dean of Ohio State's graduate school. 
He hosted an evening astronomy program on WLWC in Columbus titled It's Your World. In 1953, he worked on a report titled Fluctuations in Starlight and Skylight. This was a study that hoped to determine the ways in which the atmosphere affected celestial objects. Or in other words, Heineck was able to prove the reason stars twinkle in the sky. In the late 1950s, Heineck went on to work with the Harvard astronomer Professor Fred Whipple at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory on a Soviet satellite tracking system. Meanwhile, a new Air Force program into the study of flying saucers was ramping up. Captain Edward J. Ruppelt was a decorated World War II veteran who also had an aeronautical engineering degree. At the start of the Korean War, Ruppelt was reactivated with the Air Force Reserves and assigned to the Air Technical Intelligence Center, or ATIC, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It was his job to study the capabilities of the new Russian MiG-15 fighter jets that were being used in Korea. Ruppelt shared an office with the staff of Project Grudge. He wasn't very familiar with flying saucers before sharing office space with the group, but he was shocked at the group's dismissive attitude about the phenomena. The staff from Project Grudge openly mocked the eyewitness reports they received about flying saucers. Ruppelt quickly learned that the Air Force's investigation into flying saucers was in complete disarray. The Air Force's official stance ranged from dismissive to outright hostile towards anyone who reported seeing strange lights in the sky. By 1951, Project Grudge had so drastically cut its staff that they only had a single lieutenant to investigate all reports. On September 10, 1951, things blew up in Project Grudge's face when an Army pilot and an Air Force major were flying in a plane over Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. When they spotted a disc-shaped object about 30 to 50 feet in diameter hovering in the air. At the same time, on the ground, a radar operator was giving a demonstration to a group of high-ranking officers when he too began tracking the object, which suddenly accelerated to more than 700 miles an hour. Major General C.P. Cabell, the Director of Air Force Intelligence, demanded that Project Grudge perform a full investigation of this mysterious object which breached the base's secure airspace. Project Grudge sent its only investigator, Lieutenant Jerry Cummings, who ultimately concluded that the object was likely either a stray weather balloon or a glitch in the radar equipment. Neither of these explanations were well received by General Cabell. The General ordered that Project Grudge be reopened and start fresh. But Lieutenant Cummings was set to leave the military, so instead they turned to Captain Edward Ruppelt to restart the investigation into flying saucers. Ruppelt was given carte blanche to reignite the program. Ruppelt decided he needed to completely rethink the way they handled the investigations. He insisted that all investigators be completely unbiased. Ruppelt wanted to ensure that the men who served under him would be neither too big a believer in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, nor too big a skeptic either. Anyone showing any sort of heavy leaning in either direction would be reassigned. Although in both Project Sign and Project Grudge, the term flying saucer was commonly used to describe these objects, this became the time when the U.S. government began more commonly using the term unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, after it had first been coined back in 1947. Ruppel was able to get this new program up and running in only a few months. In order to give it a fresh start, the Air Force gave it a new name as well, Project Blue Book. Incidentally, the name Project Blue Book was actually taken from blue-colored exam books that were used in colleges at the time. Ruppelt later said that he thought the name fit because those tests contained an abundance of equally confusing questions. After the Air Force Office of Public Investigation began to receive requests for further information into Captain Thomas Mantell's plane crash, 
Ruppel looked at the files and noticed the name of the civilian scientist who had been involved in the investigation, J. Allen Hynek. He found out Professor Hynek was still living in the area, so he gave him a call and arranged to meet him at OSU the following day. Ruppel was impressed by Hynek. The professor didn't come off as a know-it-all. He was soft-spoken and inquisitive. He was clearly highly intelligent, but he didn't act as if he had all the answers before you even asked a question. Then Hynek did something else that really surprised him. When the two men got to talking about Captain Mantell, Professor Hynek recanted his early report where he agreed with the Air Force's official conclusions that Mantell crashed his plane chasing Venus. Hynek was humble enough to admit that he had made a couple of errors. For one thing, he admitted that early on he had been too quick to assume that flying saucers were simply a post-war fad that would quickly fade. He also realized after doing further calculations that the planet Venus could not possibly have been visible in the sky at the time Captain Mantell went chasing after the unknown object. Ruppelt left his meeting with J.L. and Hynek determined to find a better explanation for Captain Mantell's plane crash. His inquiries eventually led him to a startling conclusion. The military lied. Back when the investigation first began, the possibility that Mantell went chasing after some top-secret military aircraft was looked at. But the Air Force denied that any sort of military craft was in the air that day. But Ruppelt's new investigation led him to the U.S. Navy Office of Naval Research, who revealed that they had been testing a new type of high-altitude atmospheric research balloon just a few months prior to Mantell's crash in 1948. These balloons were silver in color and considered so top secret that few others in the military would have known about them. Ruppel began to speculate that one of these top secret balloons had drifted over northern Kentucky that day in January 1948. By 1952, Project Skyhook had been declassified. Ruppel learned that on the day of the crash, some of the Skyhook balloons had been launched at Clinton County Air Force Base in southern Ohio. He studied the Air Force's weather records for that day and learned that the prevailing winds coming out of southern Ohio could have been strong enough to push a balloon into Kentucky. Although none of this explanation was definitive, it was the most plausible explanation as to what the mysterious object was in the sky that Captain Mantell went chasing after, causing him to crash. Shortly before midnight on Saturday, July 19, 1952, the first sighting took place in what came to be known as the Washington Merry-Go-Round. This was when air traffic controllers at Washington National Airport spotted multiple fast-moving objects shooting through the airspace over Washington, D.C., the readings were confirmed by long and short-range radars at the airport as well as the radar operators at Andrews Air Force Base. Throughout the night, numerous eyewitness reports began pouring in about unidentified flying objects being spotted over the nation's capital. These objects ranged from bright shining orbs in the sky to metallic disks. Many of these objects were seen by some highly credible witnesses including commercial pilots and control tower personnel. Despite the number of eyewitness reports that came in, the Air Force was unable to track these objects. That's because they were able to appear and disappear out of both the sky and radar in an instant. One second they were there, the next they were gone. One of the first things they checked both at Washington National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base was whether the radar equipment was working properly, and in both cases they were. At 3 a.m. a pair of F-94 Starfire jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base were dispatched to look for the objects, but then the objects vanished. That is until the jets ran out of fuel and returned to base. Then they were spotted in the skies once again. Newspaper headlines across the country talked about the swarm of flying saucers seen over Washington, D.C. Captain Edward Ruppelt happened to be in D.C. that weekend. 
but he was shocked to realize that despite being the head of the government's official inquiry into UFOs, he didn't hear about the mass sighting until he read about it in the newspapers the Monday after it happened. Ruppelt wanted to question witnesses personally, but then he received the total runaround when he was told he couldn't be issued a government vehicle because these were only available to generals and senior colonels. He was told he could either take the bus or rent a cab with his own money, which ultimately caused him to return home to Ohio out of frustration. Then the following weekend, the sightings happened again. This time, both Washington National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base began tracking more unidentified flying objects than they could handle. Some of the objects they tracked were relatively slow-moving, at around 100 miles per hour. Others accelerated to speeds in excess of 7,000 miles per hour. Once again, Air Force jets were dispatched to intercept the objects, but as soon as the planes approached, the objects simply vanished. One of the Air Force pilots later remarked at how shocked he was at the object's incredible speed. The sightings that occurred on the weekend of July 26th and 27th over Washington, D.C. once again made front-page headlines. President Harry Truman was so concerned that he had his senior Air Force aide called Ruppelt and ask for an explanation. Truman himself was on the line that day, although he remained silent and didn't ask any questions. CIA historian Gerald Haynes would write in 1997 that President Truman was deeply concerned about the hundreds of objects that managed to aid what should have been the most secure airspace in the country. This was the Cold War era, after all, and Truman was worried that this was also part of some Soviet plot that could lead to nuclear annihilation. On July 29th, just three days after the second wave of UFOs were spotted over Washington, D.C., the Air Force held a press conference at the Pentagon to explain the phenomena to the public. Air Force Major John Samford tried to quell growing public tensions by claiming that the sightings were a combination of an unusual weather inversion that created an optical illusion on radar. Then, in addition, all the air traffic controllers and fighter pilots must have confused stars and meteors in the sky with unidentified aircraft. Captain Ruppel was not consulted prior to the press conference. He later publicly denounced the Air Force's explanation as ludicrous. It wasn't long after that when the newly formed Central Intelligence Agency got involved in investigating UFOs. The agency created a special study group with the Office of Scientific Intelligence and the Office of Current Intelligence to review the situation. This would lead to a scientific committee known as the Robertson Panel being formed in January 1953. This panel was named after Howard Percy Robertson, a professor of mathematical physics at the California Institute of Technology, who was asked to lead the group of non-military scientists. The panel met for a few days in January 1953 to review Air Force records about UFO sightings dating back to 1947. The panel reported over hundreds of UFO reports and came away unimpressed. They determined that the vast majority of such sightings, including many that J. Allen Hynek said were unexplainable, did in fact have some relatively simple explanations. The real danger the group determined wasn't little green men from outer space, but public hysteria. They ultimately concluded that none of these UFO sightings were credible and didn't pose any threat to the United States. What they did suggest, though, was that the government should take steps to alleviate public fears about alien invasions. They suggested education programs should be created to debunk UFO sightings and teach the public how to identify things they couldn't explain. They even proposed getting the Walt Disney Company involved to help produce a program designed to reduce the gullibility of the public and alleviate their susceptibility to hostile propaganda. 
Ruppel would later write in his memoirs that he felt the heat from up high in the chain of command that Project Blue Book should tow the official government line and do everything they could to debunk all UFO reports. He would go on to be succeeded as the head of Project Blue Book by Air Force Major Hector Quintanilla, a hardcore skeptic of UFOs. Quintanilla thought that all UFO reports were nonsense and needed to be debunked by all means necessary. He wrote in an unpublished manuscript how he felt J. Allen Hynek was a major liability to the government's push to debunk UFOs. Hynek, in turn, began to feel the pressure from above to become Project Blue Book's debunker-in-chief. In 1966, multiple strange lights were seen in the sky over Dexter, Michigan. Hynek was sent to investigate, and he offered a theory that was widely ridiculed by the press and public. He suggested that the UFO sightings might have been an optical illusion involving swamp gas, Newspaper editorial cartoonists had a field day lampooning Hynek for this explanation. Two Michigan congressmen, one of whom was future President Gerald Ford, took Hynek's explanation as an insult to their state and called for a congressional inquiry. Hynek testified before this inquiry panel and attempted to plead the case that these UFO incidents deserve closer scrutiny. But this request backfired and ultimately led to Project Blue Book being shut down for good. Between 1966 and 1968, the Air Force established a civilian committee of scientists led by physicist Edward Condon to investigate UFOs. Although it would later be learned that the CIA was directly involved in the Condon Committee, officially it was commissioned by the U.S. Air Force and conducted by scientists at the University of Colorado. The Condon Committee's final report was immediately made public, and it stated that most UFO sightings could be easily explained and that UFOs posed no threat to the U.S., it also suggested that the Air Force end Project Blue Book's investigations into UFOs, which it did in 1969. Heineck described the report as rambling and poorly organized, and he thought its conclusions were singularly slanted. Over the years, there have been a number of UFO researchers who believe that the government held a lot of the most sensitive UFO reports back from the Robertson Panel, the Condon Committee, and Project Blue Book. In fact, a 1969 memorandum signed by Brigadier General Carol H. Bolander later became public which suggested that the Air Force hadn't been sharing all the UFO reports it had in its possession with Project Blue Book. The memo also stated that the Air Force should continue investigating any such sightings that might constitute a national security threat. But the damage was done by the Condon Report and in 1969 Project Blue Book was shut down. But shutting down Project Blue Book turned out to be a major turning point for J. Allen Hynek. Since he no longer had the U.S. Air Force to bully him, he was now free to investigate and report on UFOs however he saw fit. In 1972, he published his first book, The UFO Experience, where, among other things, he came up with a series of now-legendary classifications about UFO incidents he called Close Encounters. Close Encounters of the first kind refers to an individual seeing a UFO at close enough range to be able to describe it. Close encounters of the second kind involves incidents where the UFO leaves behind some physical evidence, such as scorched trees or imprints in the ground. But the most famous of these classifications is undoubtedly Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which went on to be the title of a blockbuster movie by Steven Spielberg. In this type of incident, witnesses report seeing living occupants inside or outside of a UFO. Heineck was reportedly paid $3,500 for the use of the film's title, as well as his paid consultation on the script. He even has a brief cameo in the film as an awestruck scientist during the final scene where the alien craft lands. 
Hynek continued studying UFOs for the rest of his life. In 1973, he founded the Center for UFO Studies, which carries on his work to this day. In 1978, Hynek retired from teaching, but still continued collecting and evaluating UFO reports after that. He died in 1986 at age 75 from a brain tumor. Jail and Hynek never solved the mystery of UFOs. Even today, we're still asking the same questions about UFOs we were 40 years ago when he died. What are they? What do they want? And where do they come from? Over the years, all sorts of speculation has been put forth. Of course, the most common belief is that UFOs are some sort of extraterrestrial spacecraft. But other suggestions have included that they're time machines piloted by our future descendants. That they actually originate not from another galaxy, but a parallel universe to our own. Or perhaps they're just technologically superior aircraft built by some foreign government. One further possible explanation for at least some UFO sightings might be that they were actually built by the United States government. Although popular culture has conditioned the public to believe the U.S. government might be hiding secrets about aliens from another planet. One possible explanation why the government might have wanted to assuage public fears about unexplained objects in the sky might be because those same objects were actually of terrestrial origin. It's a long-standing belief among many Yule researchers who study top-secret government weapons programs that the technology we see in the public is just a sliver of what's really going on. Many such researchers believe that the U.S. government is actually about 20 to 30 years ahead of us in what we think exists in terms of technology. For example, it's well known today that during the 1950s and 1960s, engineers for the U.S. government were developing all sorts of top-secret satellite and spy plane technology such as the U-2 to be used against the Soviet Union. It seems likely that at least some sightings of unidentified flying objects were actually people seeing these top-secret government aircraft. One related theory that has been proposed by some researchers into UFOs has been that at least some UFO flaps might have been part of a CIA PSYOP to confuse the American public. In fact, just days before the Robertson panel issued its final report, Captain Ruppelt received a disturbing memo from Dr. Howard Cross, a scientist working at a private research institute tasked with analyzing UFO data. Cross suggested that a controlled experiment should be conducted in which different types of aerial activity should be staged and scheduled in order to control the steady flow of reports from ordinary citizens and military personnel. Or in other words, the government should try to drum up UFO hysteria in order to cover up the real top-secret work they were really doing. If all that sounds paranoid, then consider that in 2014, the CIA actually tweeted, Remember the reports of unusual activity in the skies in the 50s? That was us. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more about Project Blue Book, then let me direct you over to my Patreon account. Each month, patrons to the show get access to an ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which is out right now, and it's another story from Project Blue Book's case files about one of the reports J. Allen Hynek found the most convincing that proved the existence of extraterrestrial visitors. It's a story I wanted to include here, but I just didn't have the time. Patrons of the show are also eligible for all sorts of other nifty bonuses, including stickers, t-shirts, magnets, and much, much more. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Currently, we're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcast as well. 
We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. Currently, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us along and let us know how we're doing. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.